two kinds of wisdom, from above or from below. Romans 11.33, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become His counselor? Or who has first given to Him that He might be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then the the more salient scripture for where I want to go today is James. And I'm going to start at the beginning and I'm going to go somewhat swiftly through the first part of, of chapter 3 and then I'm going to, we're going to dwell a little bit more after about chapter, uh, verse 6. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, as such we will incur stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. By this he suggests that with Jesus, Jesus used the word justified on two occasions. And on one of the occasions he said, you will be judged for every idle word. For by what a man says, he will be justified, and by what he says, he will be condemned. And that you will be judged for every idle word is every useless commitment, is how I would render that. I would compare it to Ecclesiastes, I believe it's five, where he says, Do not speak rashly, and don't dare afterwards say to the temple messenger, the promise I made was a mistake or else God will blot out everything you've ever done that was right. Our words are powerful. They are the rudder of our ship. And as we speak, so we live. As we direct our confessions, so our life conforms. Our statements are not merely a reflection of our hearts, they are the direction of our hearts. That's why when John the Revelator speaks of the devil, this great dragon of old, he says that we overcome him with three weapons. The blood of the Lamb. Then the second one is the word of our testimony and the third one is that we are armed with the light, the armed with the faith that Peter spoke of. We don't love our lives unto death. Arm yourself with this attitude that you're willing to suffer for what you believe. When you commit yourself to a course, you say, this is where I'm twisting the rudder of my ship. Let the waves choose their course. Let the boats around me choose their way. But I am going to confess that this is what God is speaking to me. That is not merely a statement of what is. It is a course-setting decision of what will be. But the one thing that's going to make that word of testimony fall short is... If your will is weaker than your word. If you confess something and you say, God has told me to do this. Then you have fastened yourself down to the rock of God's word. You have said, this is, this is the course for me. But when trials and afflictions come, and it is hard on your flesh. 
so hard that it feels like death to your flesh. If then your perseverance is weaker than your word, your word is going to come unfastened from the rock and you're going to be back tossed at sea as before. That's why we've got to make confessions and commitments that are stronger than whatever we go through in the, for, in the form of temptation or affliction or confusion or any other tactic of our wily devil. We've got to hold on. That's why he says, the writer of Hebrews, hold fast to your confession firm to the end, for he who is promised is faithful. You're not going to partake of God's faithfulness if you don't hold on to what he's already given you. If you grip it in a meeting and let go of it in a trial, you'll never know his faithfulness. God's never going to make it easy on your flesh. There's not going to be any circumstance where his power comes in and makes it feel good to the flesh. When you say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You have fastened yourself to a course. You have pledged yourself to a course. And if the word is breakable, then your commitment will be broken. But if the word is unbreakable, you're going to have to change. It's you who's going to be broken. And changed, changed and remade and transformed into the image of God's Son. So what is flexible? Is it, is it my will or is it the commitment that God gave me through His grace? Hold fast to your confession, firm to the end, for he who has promised is faithful. So the tongue is not merely a reflection of what is. What we speak determines what is. It is the rudder of your ship. As Jesus said, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. One translation says it boasts great power. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire? So you can burn down a forest with words that leave your mouth that should have never left them. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell itself. So when we start burning down forests with our negative confessions, know that hell gave your tongue the spark. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil. There's something particular about that word. It is a restless evil. There's a certain restlessness that gets inside of us when we don't like the course of things and we wish things were different. And that's when the tongue is getting ignited by hell itself. It is a restless evil. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. So James perceives an irony that in the church, people are blessing God. And then he sees an irony that those who are expressing God's image in their life should be cursed by the same people who are blessing him at church. He sees a connection between your brothers and the Lord. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessings and cursings. My brethren. So he's not talking to the world here, is he? Is he talking to the world? No. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. 
Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? He's saying to them, you think you can bless God and curse the one who expresses his image in your life, but you fooled yourself. He's saying the fountain doesn't actually produce both. Everything is going to go one way or the other. You're not going to be able to say, well, I can't stand this and I don't like that and she just makes me feel like this, but oh, I love you, Lord. That's not going to work. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh water. He, he takes us back to Jesus, amen, who talked about fruits that can't come from any old vine they choose, that they, a thorn bush brings forth thorns and a fig tree brings forth figs. And what he's saying is you've lied to yourself. The things you think you offer God as figs are actually thorns. And the fresh water you think you give to God is actually the salt water that you give to your brother. And then verse 13, who among us is wise and understanding? Now, James was writing to a real need in a real congregation. And I don't think that he pivots to start parsing between kinds of wisdom out of the blue. I believe that he starts this chapter addressing the character flaws and the relational breakdowns in the congregation, and then he starts to tap in to the justifying attitude behind this sort of vileness that is coming from the tongue. Thus he introduces wisdom. The wrong kind of wisdom must be to blame for whatever they were doing. He doesn't just pivot on his heel and change topics for the fun of it. Who among you is wise? There's, there's this suggestion that it's the wise. It's those who see more, who see through, that are, that are actually moving to become fountains of salt water. Who among you is wise and understanding? And it, it also suggests that it could be those who think that they're wise teachers because he starts off by saying, don't, don't desire to be teachers because you're going to be held to a greater judgment. And then he begins to show what that judgment might be, the wrong kind of seeing through people. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds done in the gentleness of of wisdom. He's saying, if you think you're wise, don't show by your arguments. Don't show by your words. Show by your good behavior. Deeds done in the gentleness of wisdom. He doesn't even say words spoken in the gentleness of wisdom. He says, let's see wisdom. Come on now. Let's see it through your behavior. And the, the adjective that he uses there, the gentleness, the gentle wisdom, that's a particular kind of wisdom, isn't it? The gentle wisdom or the gentleness of wisdom. But, so now he, he's going he's to flip it and say the opposite of this gentle wisdom that shows itself through behavior and gentle deeds Verse 14, but if you have bitter, and from that he ties back to the sweet water and the bitter water, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. What's the lie? That, that it's wisdom when it's actually bitter envy and selfish ambition do you understand don't lie don't fool yourself don't lie against the truth then verse 15 
this kind of wisdom. So, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, and arrogant falsehood is a kind of wisdom. So we have an equation now. Behavior of gentle deeds. Bitter envy, selfish ambition, lying against the truth. These are the two kinds of wisdom. This kind of wisdom is not that which comes from above, but is earthly, sensual, or natural, and demonic. Okay, why does he say it is earthly? Why does he say it is sensual or natural? And why does he say it is demonic? Why does he choose these three depictions of this wisdom that he's already defined as selfish ambition and jealousy? Let's start with the last one. Who is the wisest creature in all the universe besides God? Satan. And yet, what did he do with that wisdom and beauty that he had? Didn't he start to compete with God? Didn't he start to have jealousy and selfish ambition? Didn't he start to envy God's place? I would be like the Most High. Right? This is how Jude describes those fallen angels in chains of darkness forever. He says they did not keep their proper abode. They did not stay in their place. But they wanted something just beyond the givens of their lot. So... This wisdom is demonic, or as your translation may say, devilish, because it is the mechanism that the devil employed. Why does he call it sensual or natural? Sensual has the connotation of sexual, and that's not really the word that he's using here. He's using the word in its original meaning in the English, coming from our senses. That which we can know apart from anointed influence. It's just what we discern without God's help. Does that make sense? And why does he call it earthly? Because it is a mechanism to build not God's heavenly kingdom, but to establish earthly power, earthly places, earthly preeminence for earthly-minded people. It is earthly natural, and demonic. And then verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. This suggests that envy and selfish competitive desire is the fountainhead from which all other evil flows. You can find this jealousy and this selfish ambition in the Garden of Eden. Did the devil not sell Adam and Eve the forbidden fruit by appealing to selfish ambition and jealousy? Who were they jealous toward? God. What were they selfishly ambitious for? Power, wisdom, Right? And the desirable fruit that was put before them. These are the mechanisms. This is where it all starts. If we can let God deal with this in our hearts, we have removed the fountain of all subsidiary evil from our lives. This is where it all flows from. 
And then he doubles down and he depicts this other kind of wisdom. The wisdom from above is first pure. If your eye be single, it only has one purpose. Pure in this word is the opposite of duplicitous. It's the opposite of multiple things happening at once. It's single purpose. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy presence? Those who have clean hands and what? A pure heart. And by that he means a single desire in their heart. And what did Jesus say? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And what did James say? The double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. He will receive nothing from the Lord. So it is that duplicity of motive. It is that parallel agenda inside of us that obscures God, that blocks us from his presence that makes us receive nothing from the one we're now blind to. Do you see it? One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That's a pure heart. I've only got one agenda here, God. I've only got one purpose. What is the psalm of David? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my mind and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way that is everlasting. The way that is never lasting is the way that is duplicitous, that is a parallel agenda. The way that is everlasting is the pure heart, that one desire. I just want to be in God's presence. I just want to be in God's purpose. I just want Him to shine through my life whether great or small, noticed or unnoticed, limelight or lemon light, I just want to be in God's will. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above is pure, then peaceable, then gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We would miss his whole point if we did not get that a certain kind of grating conflict is not in James' understanding of godly wisdom. It's just not there. Well, peaceable is the opposite of warlike because you only become warlike in your wisdom when you have an ulterior agenda. When it's God's race to win and God's race to lose, you don't feel all caught up in it. You don't feel pressurized in your rightness. You can write that one down. <laughs> don't feel pressurized in your rightness. I remember hearing about a guy who was trying to um, RV back in the 70s, which... Apparently, it was even more horrible an experience than now, if that's possible. <clears throat> and at the time, they said that in order to flush the negative contents tanks, um, you had to put a little bit of air pressure in the tanks. I think it was 10 pounds. But the the sticker that said how much had been kind of worn, so he thought it was 100 pounds. <laughs> so he's like filling it up, 
until the thing just gets bigger and bigger, and it was pressurized rightness, you could say. It did not go well. The tanks did empty faster than expected. There is a certain kind of rightness that you know it when it's pressurized. And you know when it's peaceable. So the second divining attribute of real wisdom is it's, it's peaceable. It's not pressurized. Then the next one is very much like it. It's, it's gentle. When the axe is dull, one must use more force. So there's a certain peace when you know God is in this. You can be gentle. A man of understanding is of a calm spirit, which means a stupid man is of an anxious spirit. So that's not gentle because he lacks the understanding that would... A certain kind of anxiety should be a red flag that we're not seeing this God's way. We're seeing a, a silly angle of it, but we're not seeing what God wants us to see. It's peaceable. It's gentle. It's willing to yield. Why is the wisdom from above willing to yield? Because it's not your fight. When you get invested in the rightness of something, it's your fight. Do you see that? And so there's not a willingness to yield. This is not an objective pursuit of wisdom. This is a highly personal pursuit of, I'm right. And I don't like that they don't think I'm right. And I need to prove that I'm right. They're all kind of saying the same thing. Why does he say that the wisdom from God is full of mercy? Do we have the wisdom of God on this? Is it full of mercy? He gives twice as many depictions, twice as many words are devoted to wisdom's kindness as to wisdom's uncompromisingness, though he does use both. He gives two words for wisdom's uncompromisingness, but he gives twice as many devoted to wisdom's kindness. What is the wisdom of God? The cross, the crucifixion, he says, is the wisdom of God. Do you see that? So at the cross, we see Pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits. In short, we see the counterintuitive wisdom of God winning when it looks like surrender and defeat. The cross is the wisdom of God, so of course it's got to be full of mercy. And then he says two things, it is unwavering. And this is the, the uncompromising idea. And then he says it is without hypocrisy. It doesn't hold others to a standard it does not hold itself to. And then he says that wisdom is a seed that brings forth righteousness in people's lives. And it is sown by those who make peace. <sighs> wisdom is the end of conflicts. Because wisdom is where we all lay down our perspectives and opinions and we see a bigger one. This is how love wins every single time. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The cross is how he destroys the wisdom of the wise. And the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God, God was well pleased to the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. 
For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block and to Gentiles, foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than man, And the weakness of God is stronger than man. What is the thing that he gives here as the reason for why the wisdom of the world is no good? Because the world through its wisdom did not what? So this is an insight into how Paul looks at wisdom, isn't it? Wisdom is supposed to bring you into relationship with God. And wisdom that brings you into relationship, that's what we're after. But the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. Wisdom brings you into relationship. Love, 1 Corinthians 3. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. He's saying that the very thing that God calls wisdom is what the world calls folly. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. It is written, he will, he will catch the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasoning of the wise, that they are useless. Wisdom is listed among the first manifestations of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, when he gives all the gifts. Wisdom is right there with the first manifestations of the Spirit. It's not an accumulated intelligence. It's a relational understanding that is full of mercy, gentle, willing to yield, peaceable, and pure. In Proverbs 24, he says, By wisdom a house is built, and through understanding it is established. Proverbs 9 says the same thing, 9 and 1. Wisdom builds her house. So wisdom is relating things together, bringing elements together, and causing relational oneness and continuity. But if wisdom is building the house, what is the earthly wisdom doing? It's tearing the house down. And the wisdom that is from above is peaceable because it's not aiming for our win, it's aiming for God's. The wisdom from below is competitive. There is a certain kind of anointing that will come on a jealous, competitive, ambitious person. There is a certain kind of insight that will come to someone caught in this bitter envy and selfish ambition. Can you think of times in the Bible where people started seeing through and discerning things wrongly? Remember the Pharisees in in John 2. Jesus says something. He says, you will destroy this temple and in three days I will build it back again. And those who had a heart that was right toward God heard him say, he loves us so much that he's willing to die for us and be raised, raised again. But those activated by the wisdom that is earthly, sensual, and demonic they said, we got to stop him. He's fixing to tear the temple down. The same words interpreted completely different. Have you ever experienced a, an event or gone to a meeting and, and you had one take on it and you came out and you heard somebody else's take on it? Maybe months later. Sometimes that kind of wisdom takes time to grow. But maybe a year later or more and you're like, I was there. That's not what happened. And you're baffled. You're baffled. How how could this be? Amen. Well, it's different lens of wisdom, isn't it? Amen. There is a wisdom in the world that is competition. Who could deny that some of the greatest advancements in technology and modernity have come in a competitive environment? Even war itself 
If you look at the computer, the atomic bomb, or any number of the greatest advancements in technology, look at how many, disproportionately many, came out of war. Why is this? Because there's a certain kind of wisdom that gets activated through competition. But you've got to believe that there is a building, unifying new kind of wisdom that gets activated through self-surrender. When it's his kingdom that's coming. Thank you, Jesus. As the crowds gathered before Pilate's house that morning, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? For he knew very well that the religious leaders had arrested Jesus out of envy. Their view on Jesus was the wisdom that was earthly, sensual, and demonic. The rulers of this age did not know. They were clueless. In John 11 it says, The Pharisees said to one another, If we let Jesus go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Do you hear bitter envy and selfish ambition? <laughs> so it was a certain kind of wisdom that led to murder. Perception and insight are dangerous when seen through the lens of competitive wisdom. But the wisdom from above is, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the greatness of his power toward us who believe. Bitter jealousy is proof of another's acceptable sacrifice. Where in the Bible do we see bitter jealousy get activated? Well, that's the first place, isn't it? And was, was, was Cain full of bitter jealousy before either of them made a sacrifice? Was he just sitting there seething at poor Abel? No, they seemed to be brothers. They seemed to get along. What activated Cain's problem? Abel's success. That's all. You can be bitter, but you're not going to have bitter jealousy until somebody beside you is making an acceptable sacrifice. So whenever you see it, look for an acceptable sacrifice. I know that we're supposed to look for the problems when we see bitter envy and self-seeking, but I don't. I look for an acceptable sacrifice. Oop. I smell bitter envy and self-seeking. Somebody's making an acceptable sacrifice here. Because Cain doesn't get activated until Abel does something right. You see, we can be bitter when we're all just a bunch of losers. But when somebody starts to make an acceptable sacrifice, ooh, then it's bitter envy <laughs> and self-seeking. God help us. Amen? Satan is called the accuser, right? The accuser of the brethren. Why was he accusing Joshua the high priest? Perhaps the most vivid depiction of him in action is, is when he's accusing Joshua the high priest in uh, Zechariah, right? Why was he accusing Joshua the high priest? What attracted this attention? We're told that <clears throat> Zerubbabel, son of Shaitiel, and Joshua, son of Jehozadak, rose up and began to build the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. And all of a sudden, the devil's on the scene, saying, I got a problem with him. What activated Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and the whole gaggle who tried to follow them? Everything seems to be going well. That's the problem. <laughs> you you got to get it out of your head that Failure is what activates competition. That's a lie. Success activates competition. Saul couldn't care less about David until he started doing what Saul asked. And he did it really well. And all of a sudden, spears are flying. Lies are flying. Saul's almost flying. David's flying out. <laughs> Amen. Why? Because he did something well. It's not evil that selfish ambition goes after. It's righteousness. That's why the devil competed with God. 
Korah says they came as a group to Moses to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. I'm glad nobody ever hears that these days. I'm glad that those concerned, well-meaning, upstanding leaders among God's people only ever say, we haven't gone far enough. You have gone too far, for the whole community is holy, and every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? I just had a burden for Moses' pride. We better be careful about tapping into an earthly wisdom, or the earth may swallow you up in your wisdom. You know, if we could see that this is the fountainhead of everything else we struggle with, I'll tell you, we would go after it with passionate zeal. We would want to rid our hearts of this above every other transgression. We would want to pray, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin. Let it not have dominion over me. Then I will be blameless and innocent of great transgression. We would see that this is the gateway to every other failure in our lives. We need to wake up. We need to stop believing. We need to stop reasoning with the wisdom that is flowing from envy and just smell the bacon burning and say, I don't believe this. This is hogwash. No, thank you. First to ourselves. It's like you see someone put in a place of responsibility and immediately they are under a barrage of concerns. Mm. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Look to your heart. God, help us. Nothing can destroy the church faster. On the lowest, smallest levels, if we let it into our hearts, we have let the foothold of Satan into the church. Amen. This rivalry... What, are we in a race to who's going to die first? Are we competing? No, that's my cross. Let me get nailed to it. Can we remember what this is all about? Are we still trying to seek our own? Are we still trying to establish ourselves? There's a world out there that's doing that. But God... Pull the fountainhead of envy out of our hearts. Pull the notion out of my mind that the wisdom from God is anything but pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy, and abounding in good fruit. Remind me that it is behavior done in meekness that demonstrates true wisdom and that the ultimate display of wisdom is a man winning by losing, a man bringing resurrection by dying, a man naked on a cross amid the taunts of his tormentors praying for those who are murdering him, turning out, 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 out out to help his mother, out to support those who were weeping along the way with the truth, out to help the thief make it to heaven in the last minute, out so that God wouldn't hold them accountable, the murderers, for what they were doing. This is the wisdom of God. Oh Lord, Make us know that our words are the rudder of our lives. Or in another metaphor, they are the spark that can burn down the forest of good things in our lives. Make us know that...
that when we put our words to something, we may be burning down the house of God. We may be burning down the ship. Or we may be steering it into the abyss. Amen. Help us to choose our words to reflect the yieldedness of the wisdom that is from above. Pure, gentle, peaceable, willing to yield, full of mercy and abounding in good fruits. Jesus' name. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. You say, are you speaking to those who are new to leadership? Mm -hmm. Are you speaking to those who are judging leadership? Mm -hmm. Are you speaking to every little snide remark and put down, the subtle put downs between women? Mm -hmm. Yep. Are you speaking to that pressurized, anxious acceleration that starts happening in the heart when our wisdom is no longer pure? but it's God's will with leavened with ours. Mm-hmm. Amen. You feel passionately about something and you've got to change something that's wrong in the church or in your family or in the world. You just ask, how willing to yield am I? You run that wisdom through some checks. You say, how pure is it? You tell yourself, very pure. Okay, how willing and quick am I to realize I'm dead wrong? Because if it's very pure, the answer is going to be very fast. But if it's like, well, no, 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 I know this is right. What you're really saying is, no, 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 I know I'm right. Peter had the wisdom from, abo from below before the cross, but he had the wisdom from above after the cross when he said, you know all things. I'm not here to prove something. I've already relied on that and it backfired big time. You know all things. Thank you, Jesus. You know, since the beginning of the meeting when the Lord started moving so powerfully in his spirit, I, the scripture kept coming to me when Jesus said the Father is looking for those who will worship both in spirit and truth. You know, And it's it's what gives us the confidence that this thing's going to go on because we don't just have the excitement of the spirit. I mean, I, I've, I've been in church meetings, not here, but elsewhere, where people would be running around, and, but they never hear the conviction of the truth and the word of God. And, uh, you know, Brother Blair gave us a vision he gave us a context, and above all, he gave us an example. He was the most submitted man I have ever known. If you know the backstory of his early ministry, you would agree with what I'm, I, I, I said there, you know. And he was an example of uh, someone who knew the order of God was submitted to the order of God, and therefore a different type of wisdom was able to come forth, and it built a house. Amen. I came to the meeting with this scripture marked. I know of whole organizations that the motive force behind it is selfish ambition. I mean, that's what they literally instruct and teach ministers how to make a name for themselves. That's what motivates them. Amen. And I thought of this scripture. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. And what happened to him is he's been thrown in prison. He, he's, he's in Rome under prison guard. Amen. And he says... But all of this has turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. A witness has come forth as Paul is probably, I mean, you would think he ought to be out with a big tent or whatever 
you know, on some evangelistic crusade or, you know, but he's actually incredibly restrained and constrained in a, in a prison and the gospel is going forth and converting the whole palace guard. But he says while the whole palace guard is being impressed, he says, and most of the brethren in the Lord having become, there is a little contrast there that gets me. Amen. Amen. But most of the brethren in the Lord having become confident by my chains are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Something touched off a, a certain boldness to move forward by Paul being put in chains. <laughs> you know, but it's two things that were unleashed. Paul says, some indeed preach, some of those that have been now motivated, some indeed preach even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel, you know. And I, I don't know all that went on there. Why, you know, did, did some group, you know, okay, now Paul's kind of locked up. Now this is my chance to shine or something or, or, or uh, uh, you know, he, he, he deserved some sort of bitter envy got unleashed by Paul seemingly, you know, was it now it's my time to shine? <laughs> you know, Paul's over here locked up or something now's my other things got motivated there you know two things it did release a confidence there were others that said look at the sacrifice paul has made i want to do the same amen and a burden of love sprung up in them you know i want to follow his example amen that no matter what the cost i'm going to speak the truth and understand here paul wasn't saying that these people that were preaching out of selfish ambition were necessarily saying something that wasn't true. Because, uh, boy, he, in Galatians, he, he, he's, he gets so upset when, the, when something less than the truth is being preached. He said, let them be accursed. Let them be accursed. But here something was motivated that didn't initially... It's, it's going to bear different fruit on down the, the line in the person's own life. But these are people that maybe were even speaking the truth, but they were being motivated by this envy and this competition. And I thought of over in Revelations, amen, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write these things who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. And he says, you haven't denied my name. And then he said, indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to persevere I will also keep you from the hour of trial. Behold, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Amen. And, and I remember Brother Blair ministering years ago, amen, about this, this key of the house of David and, and how the, the unity that would build a body together is what was going to provoke the Jews that really aren't yet, to become Jews and to recognize God has loved you. And it has to do. I mean, that was, that was going to be the key to, to, the, to, to the coming alive of natural Israel into the church. Amen. Amen. But it comes, he's, he's quoting here from the Old Testament where it says, Go proceed to this steward to Shebna, who is over the house, and say, 
What have you here? Whom have you here that you have hewn a sepulcher here as he who hews himself a sepulcher on high and carves out a tomb for himself? And I think most of us are aware of the scripture here. He's removing Shebna, which I believe means a tender youth is what the name actually means. Immature. Amen. And uh, he's, he's saying in that immaturity, what was motivating Shebna as the head of the house, which was the, the highest official outside of the king in, in, in the kingdom, what was motivating him ultimately wasn't the good of the kingdom, but it was to build himself a sepulcher, make himself a name. Amen. He says, I'm going to remove I'm going to remove that. And then he goes on and says, Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. And Brother Blair ministered again years ago that Eliakim, it means God will raise up. It comes from a, from a root that, that means to raise up. And it also can mean to grow up. It can be the opposite of, of Shebna. It can be... It can be someone who, who has been discipled into a place of maturity, which if that is the case, then the thing that gets discipled out of all of our hearts is wanting to make a sepulcher for ourselves. Amen. And he goes on and says, I'll, I'll, he'll be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah and the key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. He shall open and no one shall shut and he shall shut and no one shall open. What, what John is speaking of over in the book of Revelation. Amen. The context we have is course spoken of in in Ephesians 4 the body which the purpose of the body is to allow us to grow up into the head amen so that we are no longer children tossed to and fro amen I am so grateful to God for the privilege of a context where discipleship can take place that can allow us to discern the difference in the two types of wisdom, discern the difference between the two motives to go and preach and be whatever, amen. And we can have the sword of the truth that'll cut so carefully that the bone and the marrow is separated, amen. We have a chance to have the power of God unleashed and yet it not blow up into a wildfire. We have an opportunity because of the discipleship, the spirit and truth of God, the context that is here, amen. We have the opportunity to have that thing and has anybody in here never felt the little impulses of Bitter envy and judgment. It's in all of us. But God has given us something that can put it to death. There's a reason right after that when, when uh, those scriptures in James, he goes on and, and, and talks about, he says, and submit to God and resist the devil. The two are together. <laughs> by submitting to God's order, amen. By being framed by the word of God. That is our whole armor. In Ephesians, after he says all of the, you know, wives submit to husbands, husbands this, masters, slaves, children, submit, 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 submit. And then he says, therefore, put on the whole armor of God. Amen. I'll tell you, we can win real victories. Amen. Amen. We can have a true, total victory that keeps that old man bound up, amen, to where God can release his spirit through us. Amen, amen, amen. We can overcome those things, amen, amen. If we love one another fervently, amen, if we're connected, amen, amen. I don't want to be of those 
who preach out of selfish ambition because we feel like the opportunity is finally here. <laughs> Amen. God, help me. Amen. Keep me in my place. Amen. Amen. And in my place, I will feel a fire come up inside of me that won't be the kind that sets that forest on fire. It'll be the fire of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We can make it. Amen. It is different here. I'm telling you, it's different. Amen. I've seen people shout. I've seen people tell everybody, we're going to take over the world. We're going to reach the world. Amen. And it never happened. Amen. Amen. There's a difference here. Amen. There's a compression that's going to build power. Amen. Amen. I thank God for the spirit and truth. Amen. Lord, thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy strength and love thy neighbor as thyself. Oh, love is patient, love is kind.